Alright, this morning is February 26th. It is Sunday morning. This morning our message is going to be called, I Said It First. I Said It First. We're going to be in Genesis 22 as a place to start. And I want to read to you some of what Judah just read off the CD. Uh, Y'all are already in Genesis, aren't you? Okay. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. We're going to read this whole chapter here in just a minute, but I wanted to tell you that there's a principle in the Scripture. And this principle is called the principle of first mention. One of the things that Jews did and seminary students do today is the first time they saw a word appear in the Scripture that seemed significant, it took on more significance to them in the context of its original passage. What I mean by that is love is a powerful word, isn't it? We use love to describe all kind of things today on the earth. Well, the first time the word love appears in the Bible, it takes 22 chapters to get there. Does that surprise you? Now, the Hebrew word for love is aheb, like A-H-E-B, aheb. There are some other words for affection. There are some other words that every once in a while an English Bible will translate love. So if you take a concordance in an English Bible, there's one other verse that might come prior to this one. But to a Hebrew, the word aheb it's the kind of love that a father has for a son. That kind of love. The first time it appears in the Bible is right here. That meant that it took on special significance for them. Jews had all kind of wonderful things to aid in the memory of verses. And I taught you about the three schools and all of those things last Sunday. Well, from the time a child was six, he would be committing this to memory and he would always remember the first place that the word love appeared in the Torah. Let's read about that a hair just a little bit. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He's traveling. He's in obedience. Already in his heart, he's prepared to commit this act. How hard must this have been for Abraham? Abram was the man's name to start with. Do you all know what Abram means? Exalted father. The man had a name, and names in the Bible have to do with function that was exalted father. You know what that is in the King Eric? Big Daddy. <laughs> He's called Big Daddy. And God said, hey, look here, Big Daddy. I think you're awesome. I kind of like you. I believe that you'll teach your children what's right. So from you, I'm going to raise you up to be the man. You're going to be Abraham, not just Big Daddy, not just Exalted Father, but Father of many nations. Now this was hard for Abraham, not because it wasn't a good word, but he was an old man. And at the time this was said to him, it took 20 years for him to get a son. 20 years. How long have you been waiting on promises of God? Think about that for a minute. 20 years. Now he's got the son. And he's been raising him up. Been pouring out his life into him. You think, you ever seen parents that adopted a child? I had the misfortune of giving a little kid a black eye and knocking out his teeth that his parents had adopted. And, uh, you know, the mother told me just what she thought about that. <laughs> I didn't mean to. It was uh, an accident, I promise. But I remember how protective they were. How they watched every step that this kid made. Can you imagine Abraham in his older years after hearing the promises of God, waiting so long, yearning and praying, and then God speaks to him one day and says, I want you to go sacrifice your son in a region called Moriah, a place I'm going to show you. How hard must have that been to, to have heard? And then he says, the son whom you love. In other words, God knew full well how this man felt about his son, and that's why he asked him to do it. I don't know sometimes why God asks you to do the things that He does in your life. Why do you have a job you don't like? 
Why on earth do you have to live next to somebody that gives you a hard time? You know? Why did my car have to break down that morning? And yet, sometimes Jesus just wants obedience without having to explain it. It will take more than 2,000 years for what Abraham's going to do to become obviously significant. But how powerful it is when it comes about. This region, Moriah, has got another name. Some people called it Golgotha. Others called it Calvary. Abraham looks up in the distance and he sees the place that the Lord had told him about. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Who placed the wood on Isaac? The father did. Who carried the knife? The father. How hard must that have been for a father who loved his son with all that he had? to put the very wood that he was going to sacrifice him on on the son's shoulders and then walk up this mountain together carrying the knife that he's going to kill a son with. Doesn't sound very Christian, does it? Could be confusing, couldn't it? You're watching old Abe. He says he's a friend of God. Says God changed his name. Said his wife was pregnant with a promise. Promise of a son. A son who he'd love. And you've watched all this and you thought Abe's a pretty cool guy up to this point. But he sure has zigged when he should have zagged now, right? God wouldn't tell him to do this, would he? How confusing would this be to you? Did it make it any less anointed? Did it make it any less God? 2,000 years of perspectives helps you see exactly what we're looking at here. There was another son who his father laid wood upon his shoulders. His father's will to crush him, Isaiah said. Why would a father do that to a son? Hmm. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Can you imagine the frog that must have been in Abraham's throat answering this question? Now, I skipped it. Earlier, the servants asked Abraham what he was doing. He said, me and the boy, we will go up there and we will return. Either Abraham's a liar or he'd reasoned in his heart even if he killed him, God might raise him from the dead. That's what the book of Hebrews says. Abraham answered, God Himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went together. I want you to pause here for a minute and then we'll get back to this first mention. Have you ever found yourself in a difficult situation? Maybe sitting before a board of some church. Maybe before your employer. Not knowing what to do. And all of a sudden, an answer comes to you that hadn't previously been lingering around there and you could sense the presence of God on it. A guy asked me one time, I was being accused of a crime, actually. Uh, back in those days, I wore cowboy boots and sometimes a, a hat. And, uh, yeah, look, the young people are laughing already. And uh, somebody's car in my apartment complex who happened to be a, of a different color skin than mine got keyed and he assumed I did it because I drove a pickup truck and had boots. And while I was talking to him and the policeman, it just jumped out of my mouth. I'm a pastor. I would never do that. I love everybody. You know what's funny about that? I wasn't a pastor yet, but it was in my heart and it was anointed speech. It came from God. It was speaking in faith. I was just trying to tell him not that I was... I was actually an electrician's helper at the time. That's what I was doing for a living, but in my heart, I was already a pastor because that's who I was called to be. Well, I believe that when Abraham gives this answer to the son, he's not lying to him. He doesn't understand how it's going to happen. He just knows that somehow or another, God's going to take care of the problem. Whatever problem it is that you're facing, whether it's today, tomorrow, or in the future, you just got to tuck away in your heart somewhere. God's going to take care of the problem. Speak and act like it's true until it becomes a reality in your life. I don't like a lot of things that happened to me in my life. was not real thrilled when my father's leg got shattered in all kinds of pieces. wasn't thrilled about that. And yet somewhere down within you, a voice has got to cry out, it's going to be okay. God's going to take care of it. Well, that came right out of Abraham's mouth here. Abraham answered, God Himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. 
He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar atop of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. Think about this. Is this obedience? This is obedience the likes of which most of us never face. And yet, it's the faith that saves us. We are of the faith of Abraham. His son, the promised son, the son that he loved more than anything on the planet, wasn't an idol in his life. I've heard preachers twist this in all kind of weird ways trying to explain it. wasn't that Isaac was a problem. It's that we needed an example, something that would foreshadow an event that every daddy could understand. After pouring your life into a baby that you'd hoped for all of your life, after it being the promise that you strove to see come about, your heir, somebody that will carry on your name, and now you're going to have to kill him. How heart-wrenching would that be? Could there be a harder thing in the human experience? Probably not. Maybe only if you asked a mother to do it. That might be the only thing that could be harder in the human experience. wonder why God did this. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham! Abraham! Why do you think he had to yell at him twice? Abraham was serious about this. Not because he wanted to do it, but because he seriously trusted God. This wasn't a, you're going to stop me any minute, Lord, aren't you? Lord, I know you wouldn't tell me to do this, so any minute... The man had committed in his heart he was going to follow God no matter what. God had given him the son, and if God needed to give him the son life from the dead, he'd do it. He'd do whatever it took because he trusted God. All he had was God's. We're of the faith of Abraham. This is the attitude that is supposed to be in your heart. How many of you could give up your favorite television program for Jesus? About your favorite car? How about that ring that you've always wanted? What is it that you had to lay on an altar? This man took his son, and you're of the faith of Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld your son, your only son. If he says, now I know, what does that mean ten minutes before? It was still in question, wasn't it? We need to quit laying back and saying, oh, well, God knows my heart. God knows your heart by your actions. We are of the faith of Abraham. The same kind of faith that caused this man to take the most precious thing that he had had. The thing that God told him his whole life would be about and lay it on an altar and be ready to kill it. Have you ever wondered why revival so often happens after a pastor gives up, throws his keys on the altar and says, I can't do it anymore, Lord. Because that's when God can do something with you. That's the faith of Abraham. Now, that's not why we turned here, though. We were looking at this. You remember there was a Hebrew word here? Aheb. It's the Hebrew word for love. The principle of first mention says that when you first see the word love in Scripture, it takes on a special significance. It's something to take note of in your mind. Why? You're supposed to love this word. You're supposed to be clinging to the word. So this word has significance in your life. So as a young man, age six, you would have learned this. By ten, it would be totally memorized. And it would be a real trivial question for somebody to say, Hey, David, when's Ahab first mentioned in the Scripture? Oh, that's Genesis 22. Except they didn't have the numbers. That's the way that Abraham loved Isaac. Who was Isaac? Well, Isaac was his son, his one and only son. Did you see that three times in that chapter? Well, turn with me to the Gospel of John. principle of first mention. Judah, when you turn to the Gospel of John, this will be the fourth book in the New Testament and it will be on page 1176. Except <laughs> we're going to go to John 3, <laughs> which is on page 1178 in the Thompson chain. 1178, John 3. Well, if the principle of first mention to a Jew took on special significance, the first time Aheb is in the Scripture, then perhaps these Jewish writers carried on that principle. When is the first time the word love 
is mentioned in the Gospel of John. Well, we have a problem right away. The copies of the Gospel of John that we have are in Greek. Anybody know what the word for love is in Greek? Well, I'll trick you here. There's about seven of them. But the kind of love that a father has for a son is agape. Now, there's all kinds of different endings for this in Greek depending on where it's used in the sentence and the way that it's used. But the first time the Greek cognate for the Hebrew word aheb shows up in the Scripture is in this verse. Is John, you may have heard of this one, 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. What on earth was John trying to do? He wrote this Gospel for a worldwide audience, but he himself was a Jew, trained in the Jewish ways, steeped in Jewish thinking, permeated with Jewish culture, serving a Jewish king. And he understood the principle of first mention. And what he was trying to get across to you, when you first read this as a Hebrew, right away in your mind, when you saw this word, Eheb, if you're reading it in Hebrew, agape, if you're reading it in Greek, you would go back to the first time it was mentioned in the Word. What does he want you to think about? He wanted you to think about the way Israel's relationship with God started with a father sacrificing his one and only son who he loved. And what was the whole outcome of that sacrifice? Y'all remember it? I didn't read it to you. It's in Genesis 22. It's towards the end. He says, On this mountain the Lord will provide. Turn back with me to Genesis 22. Keep your finger here in John. Back in Genesis 22, Abraham goes through this experience and he begins to make some predictions. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Verse 12. He said, Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only begotten, your only son. Abraham looked up And there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. What will be provided? This was a 2,000-year-old clue. It was a 2,000-year-old statement through the man's life of obedience that on the mountain in the region of Moriah, later to be called Golgotha, later to be called Calvary, something would happen. Well, what would happen? Well, it'd involve a son some kind of way. Well, how? What do you mean? I thought it was a ram. Some kind of way an only begotten son loved by the Father would have a relationship with this mountain. Some kind of way a ram caught by his horns and thickets, would have a relationship with this mountain. What could it all mean? God had worked very hard through the Jewish culture to instill in mankind knowledge and principles of Him so that when the Gospel went forth, there would be a base of understanding and they would be able to connect the dots, the dots we're trying to connect this morning. An act of love would cause a father to do something. But it wouldn't be us who had to shed our blood. It wouldn't be us wouldn't be you who had to give this up. The Lord would provide something. Well, what would He provide? What is a ram? A ram is the king of the sheep. What separates Him from the other sheep? His crown, His horns, who He is. He doesn't go out and buy that. It's just a part of Him. He grows. And as He grows before God, fed and watered by God, His horns grow. His crown. Horn in the Bible is a symbol of authority. He was caught by His authority. He was caught by His crown. He was caught by who He was in something. What's a thicket? It's thorns. It's thistles. Isn't that what came up right after the sin in the garden? He was caught by who He was, by His very identity as the promised Son, as the only begotten Son in a thicket in sin. And He became a sacrifice for you and I. When John wrote this verse that we see strewn across baseball games, when we see it on televisions dropped you know, over the side of a stadium on a towel, says John 3.16, what this was supposed to convey to the world is the message that was in Genesis 22. God has a son that He loved just like Abraham. But God had promised, I will provide on that mountain. There's coming a day when it will be provided. The king of the sheep will suffer for your sin and die for your sin. 
This was the principle of first mention. And it shows up all over Scripture. It becomes significant. Well, is it just in this case? Turn with me to Genesis 2. Do you think it's a mistake that John did that? It's a mistake, maybe it's just a coincidence that the first time in the Bible is Genesis 2 and then later John 3. John does it throughout his writings, constantly. He's doing it for a purpose. He's trying to impact you. The Bible is not a loose collection of allegories that men made up from different nations and happened to throw together at some point in history in a book just to sell religion to the masses. The world has all kinds of fables and stories about what the Bible is. Anybody that carefully examines this book sees what I would call a scarlet thread woven through the pages. They can't help it. It's there because God put it together. The faith of Abraham is what you were saved into. That means obedience even when you don't understand because you are serving a greater purpose in some kind of way. Maybe so that 2,000 years from now, something that you did in your life will foreshadow something God wants to do then. That's a pretty big God, isn't it? He raises up people like Pharaoh for a purpose. Perhaps even the whole exodus occurred so that we would understand the second coming. It's interesting how that kind of stuff works in the Scripture. Are you all in Genesis 2? In Genesis 2, anybody in here work in gardens? Matthew does a little. Craig does a little. I'll eat what you take out of your garden, provided it's not overly green, but won't work in it. Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. If you live in a garden and you work in a garden and your job is to take care of a garden, what does that make you? A gardener, right? Adam was a gardener by occupation. An occupation given to him by God. Gardener. That doesn't seem to be a very significant word though, does it? I mean, not a prominent place in biblical typology for a gardener, is there? Wouldn't think so. Turn with me to John 15. Now don't read it. Just turn there. John 15 in the Thompson chain. It's on page 1198. Tell me about Adam's job in the garden. What was Adam supposed to do? Well, there was an earth there. And this earth apparently had some problems because Adam was told to subdue the earth. One translation says replenish the earth. That's interesting, isn't it? Indicates something may have happened here before Adam was here. Subdue the earth. There might even be resistance. His job is what every gardener's job was to do. Take care, grow, get fruit out of this thing. Let it produce something. There's work to be done on earth for an outcome, for a fruit, for a produce, for something. I mean, you don't garden just because you like to look at the flowers, unless there's an H-E-B close by and you buy your food there. But if this is the old days, you garden for a reason. You need to eat, right? First time the word gardener appears in the book of John. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does, I'm sorry, he cuts off in me every branch that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Hebrews understood what Adam was placed in the garden to do. To have dominion over the earth. It was Adam's kingdom. It was Adam's area of dominion. It was what Adam was supposed to do. So when John looks at the people and says, Hey, the Father is the gardener. You are the branches. If you don't bear fruit, you will be cut off. They understood what he's saying is God wants something out of you. He's looking for fruit from your life. I am put here. Jesus was put here to be the work product of God. He was put here to display what it was God was looking for. And if we don't do it, we're cut off. 
They understood this because this is how they studied Adam's role in life. Well, why would that be important? Let me show you one more gardener verse, then I'll see if I can tie it together with a kingdom verse. Do you remember another time in the Gospel that somebody mentions a gardener? Look at John 20. Y'all awake with me this morning? Y'all just lost time. What is he talking about? What is this babbler trying to say? In John 20, page 1205, starting in verse 13. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put Him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. He speaks to her and she knows who he is. Thinking he was a gardener, what does that have to do? Why would John burden us with these extraneous details? This book could have been much shorter, much easier to memorize if only he hadn't plagued us with these extraneous details. You ever known somebody to tell stories like this? He doesn't just say, I went to the store and bought a gallon of milk. He starts with, he woke up that morning and tied his shoe, right? And you're asleep by the time he gets to the point where he tells that he went in and bought a gallon of milk. This John, why would God call a guy like this? Perhaps he's trying on purpose to call our attention to something. This woman mistake Jesus for any regular guy who when he experienced death, couldn't get up from it. When he experienced death, was overcome by it. For 4,000 years, men who had been placed in a garden, our occupation was gardener, had been submitting to death because we had no power over it. Now at the moment in history where the man has shown up, who is the God-man, different than every other human being, the only one Satan couldn't knock over, he submits to death and he gets up from it. But the problem is everybody mistakes him for just any old regular gardener, just like all of the others. But he was something special, wasn't he? That's what this gospel's about, a special human being, an anointed human being. Maybe somebody we might even call the anointed one, the Christ. That's what that word means. John sets out to prove that Jesus is not just a guy. He is the Christ. He's trying to call your attention to the way this problem started so that you'll understand the solution. What's the problem that all mankind was facing? Isaiah 25 spoke of it like this. There is a sheet that enfolds the nation, a shroud that covers all of the people. Oh Lord, that You would take it away. That You would wipe away the disgrace and the tears from Your people's eyes. Death had shamed everyone. And where did that happen? In a garden. Now, at the place where he's introducing what the power is, what the solution to the death problem is, the resurrection, he's putting a hint there to how the problem started so that you can't miss it. But let me ask you something. Have we missed it? Well, what's the problem then? Are we just stupid? Well, I am, but you guys are obviously not. I mean, look at David. This is a brilliant human being here. We have a problem. Mankind tends to take God and remake Him in our image. In other words, have you ever noticed... Have anybody in here eaten at a Chinese food buffet? Matthew! (laughs) They once asked Matthew to leave after being there four hours. Don't pay, just go! (laughs) Buddha sits in most Chinese restaurants, right? What's Buddha look like? He's a 400-pound Asian, right? There's a problem with that. Buddha was not Asian. Oh, he was Oriental in the sense that he was from the Far East, but he was not from China. He was not from Japan. He's not from Vietnam, not from Korea, not from Laos, not from any of those little countries over there. He was from Buddha. Or Buddha. He was from India. So why do we see Buddha with slanted eyes and Gordo, big fat guy? Because as Buddhism made its way through the Orient, 
they remade Him in their image because it was more comfortable. We've done that with the Gospel. We've done that with Jesus. We've made Jesus look more like us. We've made the culture that the Bible was written in more like ours. So that when you read it, you envision Jesus walking around the United States dressed in a business suit, preaching in churches with pews and steeples. And we miss what God is trying to show us. The principle of first mention is just one caveat of hundreds of thousands that God intended for us to get. Why? So we'd be smart. So we'd be intellectual. Is that what God wants? God just wants Jennifer to impress us with her wit. No, He intended for us to get it to produce something so that we could rule and reign the earth and subdue God's enemies. That's what He wants. There is a plan and a purpose in place. God wants something from you. He didn't call you in here to be entertained. Great Maximus line, right? Are you not entertained? (laughs) That's all churches are about. That's not why He called you in here. He called you in here because He wants something from you. Think about the very first messages that Jesus ever preached. Don't just think about them. We'll read them. Turn with me to Genesis 10. Would you all like to hear one more first mention before we get there, though? you all like the first mentions? That's all right. The word Jesus. Jesus, if you're in the South. And Jesus said, right? That's G-E-E-Z-U-Z, right? Jesus. Only that's not His name. What's His name? Yeshua. <laughs> we'll get there in a minute, son. Yeshua. Anybody, what's Yeshua mean? God's salvation. How about that? In northern Israel, they called him Yeshu because that's how they pronounced it. Always in the north, Yankees say things different than those that are in the south. Rednecks, no different in Israel. In the south, they said Yeshua. In the north, they said Yeshu. That's how they knew that these Galileans were not from Jerusalem. They listened to the way they talked. So don't feel bad if you have an accent. Right? Don't feel bad if you have an accent. Yahweh's salvation. Well, where does that word first appear in the Bible? There's another way to say it. It's Yehoshua. Yeshua, Yehoshua. Same words. Yahweh's salvation. Where does that first appear? Where's Joshua first appear in the Bible? It's Exodus 17.9. I taught about this in a message called Dealing with Amalek. Would you like to know what the first time the word for Jesus appears in the Bible is? It says, and then Joshua chose some special men and he went down into the valley to fight the Amalekites. Well, why would that be important? The first time Joshua's mentioned, what is he mentioned doing? Fighting with warlike people in the valley. Fighting in the valley with the people that are the enemies of God. Do you think then that John, the writer of John, when he says in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work, may have been playing on that? Why did God insert into the Scripture a man, a real human being who did real things? Why did God write about him in the Torah? Because this man's life in some way foreshadowed a greater reality that was to come. Well, that's great. Those are those Bible people. You were saved in the faith of Abraham. What does your life tell people is coming? See, I'm not reading you this just to entertain you, although I do hope you're entertained. I hope you'll come back. I hope you remember it. I'm reading you this because we were saved into something. We were saved for something. Your life is supposed to tell people something is coming. Well, the promised son's already come. So what is our life supposed to say? Well, the gardener thing. That's already happened. So what is our life supposed to say? Joshua thing. That's, that's already happened. He's already fighting in the valley. What is our life supposed to say? I'm glad you asked me that today. In Genesis 10, we find the first mention of another word you need to know. Did I tell you I'll go somewhere else already? Oh, Good. Genesis 10. Genesis 10 is on page 10, Judah. Don't you love that? Genesis 22 is on page 22. Genesis 10 is on page 10. 
It's almost like the Thompson chain is a special book. Isn't it? I'm teasing. I'm not a Bible salesman. Although, yeah, we'll endorse the product, right? In Genesis 10, <laughs> starting in verse 10. Does that sound all right with y'all? Eight. Let's start in verse eight. <laughs> Cush was the father of Nimrod. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, and Shinar. Nimrod goes on to settle Nineveh as well. It's interesting. The first time the word kingdom is mentioned in the Bible, the very first time we see the word kingdom, is the Hebrew word mamlacha. Mamlacha. M-A-M-L-A-K-A-H. Mamlacha. If you were a Hebrew growing up, you would remember the first time this appears in the Bible. You know why? This guy did bad things. Where, what did his kingdom center around? What's it say? Babylon. Where else? Iraq. Where else? Lakai. Where else? Kalna. Where else? Shinar. What was in Shinar? The Tower of Babel. All of the world unified under this one man. This one man who was the first one to be said to have a kingdom. They unified. And what did they do? They rebelled against God. They said, we will not be spread out over the earth. We will not be fruitful and multiply to every end. Instead, we will build a name for ourselves. God had said, if you make something for me, I want you to make it out of stones that are uncut. I don't want it to be representative of the work of your hands. I want it to be representative of me. And yet they took clay, something from the earth, and they packed it and they made bricks, represented the work of their hands. Instead of the strength of the structure being the adhesive, what holds it together, the strength of the structure was tar, a nasty, sticky, earthy substance. And what did God do? He destroyed it. So Nimrod then was a mighty warrior. Somebody renowned in the earth. Somebody that the earth could look up to as a great leader. And he unified the world in rebellion against God. Well, if that's the first time kingdom appears in the Bible, is it the only time kingdom appears in the Torah? No, there's a mention of another kingdom in the Bible. Would you like to know where it is? What, did, what were the Jews' lives based on? There were five foundational books that they called something. The Torah, the law. And where was the law given? It's all right, y'all can answer. The law was given at Mount Sinai in the desert, right? And this was a special, unique moment because God Himself is giving a nation on earth His special Revelation, teaching them the right way that they should live until certain promises come about, like the promise of that sun and on the mountain things being provided for. Those things, the law was given to teach the people the right way to live. And it had a promise in it. In Exodus 19, verse 6, it's on page 82 in the Thompson chain. 19, verse 6. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So we have two kinds of kingdoms that were introduced in the law. What was the very first one that was ever introduced? Nimrod's kingdom. The warrior. The one that the people wanted. Who said, don't listen to God, listen to me. God said, spread out over all the earth, but I want you to gather together. We're going to make a name for ourselves. Two kingdoms. Principle of first mention. Well, let's look at the first time the word kingdoms mentioned in the New Testament. Would you like to do that? Matthew 3. 
We're going to go from Matthew to Mark to Luke to John. Okay? So we'll be in the New Testament from here on out. Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. If you're in the Thompson chain, holler out when you get to Matthew 3. My son's learning today. Page 1071. Matthew 3, 2. Who's speaking? John the Baptist. And he's announcing something, isn't he? Matthew 3, 2 says, And saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The very first time that we have the word kingdom appearing in the New Testament, it's directly opposed to a kingdom that is already existent here, the kind that Nimrod established. Nimrod established a kingdom where people were in rebellion to God. Nimrod established a kingdom where people wanted to make a name for themselves. We are a part of a kingdom that submits to God. A people that do not make a name for ourselves, we lift up one name, above every name. The reason that this word kingdom appears here is because it is announced through John the Baptist. It's also announced through Jesus that there is a kingdom already on the earth and there is another one that has come near. Now in English, if I say something is near something else, what does that mean to us? It means it's in close proximity, doesn't it? It's not what this means. This means that it is about to envelop you. It's right here. You can taste it if you want to doesn't mean that it's simply adjacent to you. It means that it's at hand. It's about to pop on the scene, if you will. That's why they translate this so many different ways. They don't know how to translate it. So what is the message of the Bible? What is God trying to get across here? God's trying to get across that man had a job to do as a gardener, but he didn't get it done. Somebody that looked just like a regular gardener has now conquered the problem because he was the promised son and on that mountain it was provided for. There was a kingdom that was on the earth that was in rebellion to God. And now there is another kingdom coming to take its place. Have you noticed that when the Gospels teach what Jesus taught, what did He teach? What did they go forth and say more than anything else? The kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand. But is it just enough to know it's about to envelop you? Is that enough? To know that the kingdom's right here. It's right at the door. It's right before your eyes. Is that enough? No, it's really not enough. That's why Mark 1.15, the very first time that Mark mentions it, he adds some words for us. Mark 1, verse 15. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. What do I do? Well, you need to repent and believe the good news. It's not just enough to know that the kingdom of God is here. It's an option. It's about to envelop you. You have to do something. What is the word repent? Hebrew, it's teshubah. It means to make an about face, to turn or to return. Isn't that interesting? Return. How have you heard repent? The only way you've probably ever heard repent in your life is, Gabriel, stop doing that. You just need to repent. Gabe's never heard that though, right? Debbie. It was Debbie. <laughs> we know that's not true. What could it mean to return though? You need to repent. You need to return. The kingdom's at hand. Believe the good news. What would you be returning to? How did man start this? In a garden with the earth submitting to him. Him walking with God. Him in the will of God doing what God called Him to do. So if you're being told to teshuba, to repent, the kingdom is near, what are you really being told to do? Hey buddy, you're supposed to live up to what you're called to be. You're a gardener. The problem's being fixed. The kingdom power is on hand. Somebody's fixed this problem. This is a return to what you are called to be. You're supposed to be walking with God. You're supposed to be living out His principles. But in case that was not enough, Luke mentions it. The very first time Luke mentions it, he adds something. Turn to Luke 1. This is a promise to Mary about the promised son who would come. 
Luke 1, verse 30. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with a child and give birth to a son. You are to give Him the name Yeshua. Yehoshua. It's going to be there to destroy the enemies of God. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom, first mention, will never end. Not only is this a kingdom that is at hand, not only is this a kingdom that is about to envelop the earth, not only is it a kingdom that you have to return to a state where you're walking with God to be able to enter into, but it's a kingdom that will have no ending ever at any time. As opposed to what? As opposed to that other kingdom that is drawing to an end now. These kingdoms are set in opposition to each other. One in rebellion, the other in submission. One exalting the name of man, the other exalting the name of Jesus. One ending, the other coming. This would be pregnant in the text, if you will, because you knew of the other kingdom. God began to set it forth with the law. He said, you are destined to be something, a kingdom of priests. Now it's time, and the announcement's going forth. But there's a requirement for the kingdom. Turn with me to John. Again, first mention of this word in the book of John. Let me in John 3. First time the word kingdom appears in the book of John. John 3 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. There was one kingdom on the earth in rebellion already. The other one is right here for this Jewish leader to step into, to begin living, to be able to live out, return to what he was called to be. A man living in submission to God, doing God's work. But something was necessary first. He had to have a new start in life. He had to throw away everything that he had known. He had to discard everything that he had ever been, everything that he had esteemed and give his life a new start. He had to be born again. This is pregnant within the text. You want to enter from one kingdom to another? You want to pass from death to life? You need to recognize that this man's not just a regular gardener. He's the promised son who was to come. He's different than all of the others. So then what is our gospel message? Why go through all of this? What does the Bible want you to get? What does God want you to get out of the text? Is it that you can memorize Hebrew words that I give you? Is it that you can memorize Greek words? No, it's to live like there's a kingdom at hand. To understand the sacrifice that's been made and that a father, broken, had to live these things out. That God our Father relates to us in that way. Showing you how hard it is to do this. What a great sacrifice it is. But why? Because you're supposed to be living like you're in the kingdom of God now. We've been trained in our Greek mindset to think of the kingdom of God as another place, maybe on another planet, in another realm, somewhere not here. Why not here? Because we've understood the message of the first kingdom. We've understood that this earth is corrupt, full of violence, in rebellion, lifting up their own name, not lifting up God's. What we've not understood is what the Bible calls good news. The kingdom is at hand. It's in your face. It's right here. It's waiting for you to return to what you were called to be. The world's understood the Nimrod message perfectly. Dog eat dog. The hunters will survive. The strong, the spear-like, the fierce warriors, they will make it. What they've not understood is Joshua is fighting for you in the valley. What they've not understood is on that mountain the Lord provided. What they've not understood is the one kingdom yields to the other and it starts in you. When does the kingdom of God advance? It advances when Bobby lives like he's in that kingdom now. 
It starts when Debbie lives like she's in that kingdom now. Every day before you, every moment of every day is a choice. Which kingdom will I live in? Will I live in Nimrod's kingdom that is in rebellion to God, making a name for myself? Or will I live in the kingdom of God that has come upon us, making a name for Jesus, dying to self, denying the flesh, and doing what God says? You will choose to live in a kingdom now. You've only heard it said this way. David, you pray with me, and right now, and your eternity will be sealed. You'll live in the kingdom forever. That's a crock. David chooses today which kingdom he will live in today. Not forever. Not for an eternity. Not somewhere else. Today. You make a choice every day whether you extend heaven into other people's lives or whether you extend hell into other people's lives. David's my neighbor, so I'm going to keep picking on him. He's also my brother-in-law, which means he can't get away from me. If all I do is mean things to David, I am extending the kingdom of hell into his life. That, by its very nature then, when the sum total of my life stands before God, I simply will get what I've asked for. More of the kingdom that I've chosen to live in. But if what my life is about is extending the God-like, heavenly principles into everyone's life around me, living as if I were still in a garden-like state, refusing to submit to death, refusing to listen to the serpent, being what God called me to be, then I'm simply asking for an extension of that kingdom in my life in the age to come. You're living in one kingdom now, one or the other now. You can't get away from it. The Gospel message is the good news that you can live in heaven on earth today. You say, but wait, what a minute. Well, what about death? What about all of these problems? Why do we see such horrible family? Well, Perhaps the people need to live like they're in the kingdom now. What do you do as a Christian? If you have the means to meet someone's need and you're living in the kingdom of heaven, what do you do? You meet the need. When you don't, you just extended hell into their life. What do you think the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is all about? I don't have time to read it. What do you think it's about? There's a rich man and there's a poor beggar outside of his house. He was so poor that the dogs came by and licked his sores. All the while, his brother, a fellow Israelite, lives right there, enjoying the plenty of this world, enjoying all that this world has to offer, and extending hell into his brother's life. What happened to the rich man? He got what he asked for, didn't he? He went to a very hot place that was arid and had no water. What happened to Lazarus? Because... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can choose to live in one or the other right now. That man chose to put his brother in hell. What will you choose to do tomorrow? This principle of first mention, it's a gimmick. It's a hook. It's a way to get you to pay attention. That's it. And I don't feel ashamed to do it. You know why? God did it. He gave us these things in His Word because He wants you to understand something. He wants you to live like you're in the kingdom of heaven now. All of the things that you learn in church, all of the things that you share with people around coffee pots to show them how much you understand, how deep you've studied the Word, don't mean anything if we don't do it. What we are called to do is live in the kingdom of heaven now. Next time somebody tells you to repent, don't think of it as stop doing something bad. Think of it as doing what you were called to do. See, we only think of sin in the realm of doing, committing something that was bad. You know, you need to stop committing this that was bad. That's not what sin is. It's a part of sin. Sin is not doing the good that God's called you to do. So if you repent, you are returning to the good God's called you to do. The kingdom of God will be set up on earth. Those that it starts with will be the members of it. Those that refuse it and spurn it now they're not fit for God to reign in. Isn't it funny? The church today is focused on being somewhere else, doing something else, leaving this old stinking world behind. And what God is focused on is preparing the people here that are living in His principles now, that are establishing His kingdom now so that He can rule and reign in them. What a huge difference. What a distinction that is. You know, if we're playing a board game, perhaps Settlers of Catan, 
These two young guys in the church love that game. And I think the point of the game is to have as few points as possible. And I play with all I can. Just give all my heart to have as few points as possible. But the point of the game was actually to get to 12 or 13 points, whatever it is first. It doesn't matter how much effort I put into it, really, does it? The church is off base. We think that the point of this is to believe. The point of this is to spend an eternity somewhere else. The point of this is to be blessed. None of those things are the point. The point is to live in the kingdom of heaven now and to see it set up as a reality all around us. God is preparing the people He can live in. God walked with the people in the garden, didn't He? Then there was a fall and something happened. There was a separation. What did God do next? He set up a nation that He said would be a kingdom for Him. What did He do with them? His presence went with them everywhere. Why? He was showing them the way back to His presence. That happened in a tabernacle. You know where else it happened? In a temple. A permanent dwelling. Then God moved into the neighborhood by putting on flesh. Showing always I'm looking for a people I can dwell in. A people that will recognize my heavenly kingdom on earth. Didn't Jesus pray like that? Our Father who's in heaven, Thy will be done on earth. This was their focus. Now He has poured out His Spirit on the planet. We think that's so we can speak in other tongues and prophesy or witness. It's not. Those are all part of it. You're witnessing to the kingdom of heaven being on earth now. For God looking for a people He can dwell in now. For God's residence to be on the earth now. Quit waiting and start living. Quit looking for it to be a future event and start doing it now. And then the future will overtake us. I promise that's the case. The Bible says that Jesus reigns in heaven now until His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. Well, who's doing that? We're all waiting for it to be done. Who's doing it? You are. Y'all stand up. I'm hoping to spur you on to action. I'm hoping to get you to see a choice, a clear-cut choice. Don't mistake Jesus for any regular gardener. He's got power over death. He has instituted a kingdom now. A kingdom right now. He said, well, Eric, are you saying, you keep saying kingdom now, are you saying we're in the millennial reign? No, not hardly, but we're supposed to be living as if we were. Tasted of the heavenly age. Having His divine presence in us now. Ready to show the world what it can be like so that they'll want to join it. Your life displays something. Just like Abraham's did. Just like Joshua's did. In fact, Peter calls you a living epistle. But what does your life display? Discouragement? Defeatism? Grumbling? Complaining? Or victory and provision in love and mercy and generosity and overcoming power? What does your life display? Which kingdom are you choosing to live in? Choices before you is already at hand. We're not waiting for it to come. It's here. It's waiting for you to step in it. Which kingdom do you live in? When you think back over your week, where did you spend more time? Which kingdom? Say, I want to be a people of the kingdom living in it now. I don't do it well all of the time. I don't do it well most of the time. In fact, I live for the moments that I do do it well. But Jesus died to give me the right to do it all of the time. And how dare I fall short or settle for a one in ten or a one in seven or a one in five. We need to do it all of the time. Peter liked it so much that when he was feeling it on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, Lord, let's build a temple. Let's, let's build a tabernacle here. I'll build shelters for us. Then the Bible writer says he didn't know what he was saying. What Jesus did gave us the ability to do that all of the time now. You don't need to wait for anything. What, wait for empowerment? It's in you. Wait for knowledge? It's in us. Wait for the kingdom? The kingdom's in you. What are we waiting for? That's the question. I called this message, Who Said It First? It doesn't really matter who said it first if you don't get the point of what they're saying, does it? This is what the Bible's about. Your life's changing now. Let's pray. Mighty God, we pray for Your kingdom power to be displayed in our lives. Not through the working of miracles, although that would be great, but through the living, through our deeds, through kind acts displayed in love. Lord, we want the kind of faith that James spoke of. 
that is witnessed to by the deeds that it produces. Lord, your writer, Paul, he said that faith produces obedience. Lord, I want that obedient faith in me. I want it in our church and we want to live in your kingdom now so that we'll be ready for it when it's fully established on the earth. And we pray, let it come and let it start with us. That's what we pray. In the name of Jesus, we lift up this request. We ask that this message also not be one that fades out of memory right after lunch, but that stirs in our righteous soul, remembering every moment the choice before us, which kingdom to live in. Holy, holy God, I pray that You would be formed in Your people. I know it's Your desire that You would be fully formed in us, that we would reach a place of maturity, not being tossed like waves of the sea between two kingdoms. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.